What follows is the first sermon in a new sermon series on 1 Peter. And I look forward to preaching this series. In my 13 years or so of pastoral ministry, I probably haven't preached more than one or two sermons out of this letter. So I look forward to diving diving in deeply and uh, researching and learning all I can about it and preparing these sermons. The, the main theme of this first sermon is that we all want happiness in life. We all sort of want the same thing. We want to be happy. We want a deep and lasting kind of happiness. And what I want us to notice is that most of the time, whether or not we can be happy depends on external circumstances, many of which are beyond our control. But what Peter is describing in this passage of scripture is a kind of happiness that doesn't depend on external circumstances. Um, it comes from Christ, obviously, and it's a, it's a happiness that all of us can have no matter what else is going on in our lives. He's writing to a group of Christians, after all, who are suffering deeply uh, on account of their faith. Some are even facing death. So, and yet, Peter says in the midst of this that they too can be happy. I, I want to I know what that kind of happiness is and how I can achieve it, don't you? If so, I hope you'll join me for this sermon, and it comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This week's New Yorker magazine has an article on a phenomenon, a growing phenomenon known as hashtag van life. And the couple, a young couple named Emily King and Corey Smith, who have helped to popularize the hashtag van life. A few years ago, this couple bought a 1987 Volkswagen Vanagon, and it is now their home. They live out of their van. They spend their time traveling along the West Coast, the coast of California, surfing whenever the waves are good. Or they, they go hiking or camping or skiing, whatever else their heart desires, all the while documenting their adventures on Instagram. 
for income, Emily at first had a job as a web designer, which didn't require her to be in an office. As long as she had a good sell signal, she could work full-time while also enjoying the van life. But they, they gained so many followers on Instagram that they decided that they could make their living by advertising, by getting sponsors and, and pitching their sponsors' products through the pictures that they post on social media. Their message is this, live like us. Enjoy your life to the fullest. Don't don't be tied down to a a job or or an office. Don't, Don't let work or career prevent you from realizing your dream. Your dream isn't found in a big paycheck. Or, or a high-status career. It's found in living a hashtag van life, a life of total freedom. This message is catching on, and I totally get the appeal. I mean, they make it seem like they live their lives on a permanent vacation, that they don't really need to work, that they've, and they've inspired thousands of their Instagram followers to, to give the hashtag van life a try. In fact, the uh, reporter interviewed a, the owner of a used Volkswagen uh, dealer in California, and he said, business is booming because of this van life. But, and I admit this could be sour grapes on my part, The article does point out how hard the couple has to work in order to make it seem like they're not working hard. (laughs) For instance, it often takes many hours to take and edit uh, that one perfect idyllic picture of them in their van somewhere in paradise. Plus, they have to constantly worry about whether or not they're getting enough likes on their pictures, because that's what their sponsors want to see. So there's stress about that. And let's, let's notice how much of living the hashtag van life depends on external circumstances, many of which are beyond their control. I mean, what if they get pregnant and have a baby or two? Suddenly that van won't be quite big enough for their family Uh, What if one of them gets sick or or injured and that requires uh, lengthy hospital stays or surgeries or rehab or doctor's visits? Will they still be able to travel as much as they want and do whatever they want? Or what if one of their parents gets sick and needs to move in with them? Suddenly that van won't work anymore. And, And part of the couple's appeal, let's face it, is that they're young and beautiful, and some of you might have learned from experience that youth and beauty fades. (laughs) I certainly have. I mean, how long can anyone stay in the business of taking pictures of themselves and getting other people to pay for it? Obviously, only a, a tiny fraction of Americans could begin to afford to live the hashtag van life, not to mention nearly everyone else in the world. But suppose, suppose that the happiness 
promised by the hashtag van life were available to everyone. Not just to the young, the beautiful, the lucky, the wealthy. Suppose it didn't require living in a van or being on the road. Suppose everyone in the world could afford it. Wouldn't you want that? I would. In a way, the first epistle of Peter is about this kind of happiness. But, but it's, it's a happiness that all of us can truly experience. The message throughout the letter is that true happiness, a, a deep and abiding joy, is available right now and for all time to those of us who are in Christ. And best of all, it's not a happiness that depends on external circumstances, things outside of our control, or at least outside of God's control. It's an invincible kind of happiness. It's a bulletproof kind of happiness. It's built to last for eternity. I want that. I need that. Don't you? Notice in verse 1, uh, Peter calls the recipients of this letter exiles in a foreign land or resident aliens. In a way, they are, they are people not unlike Emily and Corey and all those who've embraced the hashtag van life. They are no longer at home. They no longer have a home. The difference is the people to whom Peter is writing are living in the same place they were living before their conversion. Now that they've found Jesus, they have another home. And it's a home in heaven. See, Emily and Corey and their van life followers are saying, your home isn't here with your boring nine to five job and your cookie cutter life. You belong somewhere else. You need to go find your true home. Their problem is they think they can find their true home in this world. And Peter says, no, we're probably not so different from them. We say or think things like, if only I got that job, if only I have, if only I had that home, if only I had that car, if only I had that girlfriend or boyfriend, if only I married that person, if only I had that body, if only I made that team, if only I won that award, if only I got into that college, if only I was born into that family, if only I got that promotion, if only, if only, if only. I have a friend who is a professional writer and journalist. He wrote a successful book many years ago. And not long ago, he was having a midlife crisis. And he was deeply regretting the fact that he never followed it, followed it up with a, a second book. And now he feared that it was too late to do that. I said, if it's any consolation... Even if you had written that second book, no one would remember it after you die anyway. <laughs> that didn't make him feel better for some reason. My point is, at the root of, of all of our if-onlys is the sense that we haven't arrived yet. 
We're missing something. We are, we are not where we want to be. We are not as happy as we want to be. We're not as happy as we think we ought to be. Even though by most objective measures, we middle-class Americans are pretty wealthy, both historically and in terms of the population of the world. Yet we're unsatisfied with life, and we often feel resentment. But do we ever stop and say, maybe I'm looking for happiness in the wrong place. Maybe what I think will make me happy is an illusion, every bit as much as chasing after some hashtag van life. If so, then First Peter is a letter just for us. Even though the recipients of this letter couldn't be more unlike us. Peter Peter is writing to a group of, of mostly Gentile churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And they are suffering. Many of them are facing persecution, violent persecution in some cases, even death, even martyrdom because of their faith. Many of them are literally slaves. Most of them are poor, some even destitute. To say the least, their lives in general are much, much more difficult than our lives. Yet in the midst of this suffering, Peter reminds them of all the reasons that they have to rejoice because of what God has done for them. Through Jesus Christ. As he says in verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while. If necessary. You have been grieved. By various trials. So that. The tested genuineness. Of your faith. More precious than gold. That perishes. Though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. United Methodist Church uh, mega church pastor Adam Hamilton wrote a book recently called Half-Truths. And in it, he takes aim at some of those popular sayings that we well-meaning Christians say. And we say them as if they come directly from Scripture. And so, you know, he sort of like analyzes them and tells us why they're wrong and why we shouldn't say them. And one of these popular sayings is this. God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that before? God won't give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've said it. And plenty of other Christian writers and bloggers out there have talked about how these cliches are are wrong. But with all due respect to these bloggers and to Adam Hamilton, it's hard for me to see how this saying is not only half true, but completely true, at least for those of us who whose faith is in the Lord. My my concern with this saying, God will never give you more than you can handle, is that, you know, if we say it to someone who's in the midst of 
you know, great suffering, it may not be pastorally helpful at that moment. And like Job's friends, it'd be better if we just don't say anything at all. But still, God doesn't give us more than we can handle in the sense that through our faith in Jesus Christ, God promises to give us the grace that we need in order to handle anything. Think of Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul's discussion of his, this mysterious thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times, Jesus, take this thorn away from me. We don't know what it was, probably a painful physical ailment of some kind. Three times he prayed, probably more than three times. It's probably a symbolic number. He prayed a lot for Jesus to take the thorn away that was causing him so much pain. And you know what? Jesus said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And isn't this true for anything that we face today? Even if we face the worst case scenario, our martyrdom, our death, God won't God give us the the grace that we need to, to handle even that? The courage, the strength. Obviously, handling it doesn't mean that we emerge from it unscathed, without injury, without wounds. But we can trust that whatever we go through, God, as in Romans 8.28, is using it for our good. And, And this is the message in today's scripture. Let's notice what Peter says here. For a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, Peter says, there's a reason you've been grieved by these trials. And that reason is in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What on earth is Peter saying? He's comparing the trials that we face to gold being placed into a fiery furnace. And then that furnace, the the fire uh, burns away all the impurities, all the chaff in the gold, so that on the other side of that furnace, the gold is purified and strengthened. Similarly, Peter says that all the trials, all the suffering, all the persecution that these Christians face is serving a valuable purpose. God is using them to purify their faith, to strengthen their faith. Like it or not, Peter says, this is how God does it. Through suffering, through trials, even through pain. If there was a better way, God would do it that way. But God is doing what is necessary. Notice verse 6. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We sang uh, earlier in this service, we sang Amazing Grace. The author of that hymn is, um, what's his name? (laughs) Uh, John Newton. And he was also an Anglican pastor. And he said the following. Everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Think about that. 
Peter is making the same point in verses 6 and 7. Now, please notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God necessarily causes pain and suffering. He might cause it. There's plenty of places in the Bible where he does, but not necessarily. And he certainly doesn't cause evil. We have a spiritual enemy, Satan, and Satan has an army, and they do a pretty good job causing plenty of evil in this world, often with the help of us human beings. I'm also not saying that these words about God transforming trials into something good apply to non-Christians. Apart from faith in Christ, we don't have access to God's all-sufficient grace. This is a promise for Christians only. Finally, the last and most important trial that any of us will face in our lives is our own death. All of us will die someday unless the second coming happens first. But for us believers in Christ, death is hardly the worst thing that can happen to us. In fact, for us believers, it's it's a transition to an unimaginably better kind of life. Notice in verses 4 and 5 how Peter describes what's waiting for us there. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, that is, at the second coming. God is doing two things, protecting our treasure in heaven and then protecting us while we're here on earth so that we can be sure we'll get there someday. This is why Peter says we have a living hope. Just as Christ was resurrected from the dead, we who have been united with Christ through faith and baptism can be confident that someday we will be resurrected too. Now, for those of us who are left behind when one of our loved loved one dies and goes to heaven, it is right and fitting for us to grieve. It's painful to lose someone we love. God knows that it's painful. Jesus wept when he lost his good friend Lazarus, even though Jesus knew he was going to bring him back to life. But for the believer who dies in Christ, it is the opposite of painful. A pastor said this several years ago in the wake of that horrible Newtown, Connecticut school shooting. He said this, and and it's certainly true. The first five seconds in heaven more than compensate for all the suffering that preceded it. That's true for those children and teachers who suffered. It's true for these Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering and dying for their faith in today's scripture. And it's true for us. The bottom line is this. If we are children of God, we have good news. We know that when pain and suffering and evil come our way, and they will, God will use them for our good. Will we trust that? Can we trust that? I mean, I haven't suffered much in life, but I have suffered enough 
to know and to see and to believe that God has used it. Even things I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, God has used these things to make me into a better, more faithful person and and Christian than I would ever be otherwise. If you think I'm bad now, I can only you can only imagine how I would be had I not gone through the trials that I've gone through. Praise God. So, what if the next time we're in the midst of suffering, I mean we could be right now too, of course. Instead of asking, why is this happening to me? We could instead instead learn to ask, God, God, why are you letting this happen to me now? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? What do I need to learn? How are you using this experience for my good? We may not get the answers to those questions, but even if we don't, we can trust that God has a good reason for allowing it. I said earlier that Peter promises us an invincible, indestructible, bulletproof kind of happiness, a lasting kind of happiness, or joy, which, unlike the happiness that the world promises, doesn't depend on external circumstances. Do do you see how that's true here? Peter Peter is saying that that his people, the ones who were suffering and dying for their faith, the ones who were slaves, the ones who are destitute, the ones who are being badly mistreated by the world, these same people can and will experience joy even in the midst of suffering and pain. Do you see that? Those two things are not Mutually exclusive. The world today thinks that they're mutually exclusive. You can have happiness or you can have pain and suffering, but you can't have both at the same time. But notice the scripture says that's not true. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, something you're doing now. Verse 8, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, something you're doing now as you're being persecuted, as you're suffering, as you're experiencing an incredible amount of hardship. This lasting kind of happiness and joy does not depend on what's happening in your life. Whether you're living a a carefree hashtag van life, whether you're stuck behind a desk in a boring office job, whether you're in a hospital or nursing home, whether whether you're sick and homebound, whether... Whether you're, you're, you're on your deathbed, there's a joy that God wants you to have in any circumstance. And he's, he's testing you now. He's putting you through fiery trials, not because he's mean and wants you to suffer, but because he wants you to possess this indestructible kind of joy. And this is the way to do it. This is the way to, to have that kind of joy. Well, maybe as I'm speaking these words, you're thinking, Pastor Brent, it's not working. <laughs> when I consider my own life, I just keep failing one test after another that the Lord sends my way. I am such a failure. 
If you feel that way, please remember this remarkable fact. The same man who wrote today's scripture, the same man who's talking about how God puts us through these fiery trials in order to help us, is the same man who, when he faced the most, one of the most fiery trials that anyone can face on the night that Jesus was arrested, he failed it in the most spectacular way. This, in spite of the fact that Jesus warned him it was going to happen, predicted he was going to do it. And what does Peter say? Not me, Lord. <laughs> I don't care if I have to die. I will never deny you. He, he was told, warned that it was coming. And what does he do? He fails. He ends up denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So maybe you feel like a failure because you failed some tests that came your way. You probably haven't failed as badly as Peter. And, and look what Jesus did with him. Instead of kicking him out of the club, he appointed him as an apostle. And that's why we have this letter today. Brothers and sisters, if you've failed miserably as a Christian, welcome to the club. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Part of the reason for testing, after all, is to see where your problems are so that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, you can be transformed. My point is, if you keep trusting in Jesus, He can and will redeem even your failures, even your mistakes, even your sins. I'm, I'm living proof of that, and I bet some of you are too. Peter certainly is living proof of that. Amen? Almighty God, teach us. Teach us through the hard times in our lives. Teach us through our own failures and sins. Teach us even through the good times. Teach us at all times. Test us at all times. Teach us how we can be more faithful to you. Use difficult circumstances to bring us closer to you as your word promises. Help each one of us to trust that no matter what we're facing, not only are we not facing it alone, but we are facing it for a reason. And if we keep trusting in you, you're going to bring good out of it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll join us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a traditional service at 11. 